Good morning. For those of you I don't know this morning, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Valley Church, and this morning I have the privilege of bringing to you God's word from Psalm 46. And um, I've found that the hardest part of preaching God's word each week and preparing and planning through a sermon is deciding what not to say. I'm sure I have to figure out what to say, and um, but it's challenging to figure out what not to say because there's so much there. And fortunately, this morning I've narrowed things down to about an hour and a half. Um, kidding, maybe. Uh, I want to remind us of of what we studied a few weeks ago in First Peter, and we kind of pointed to this uh, chapter four, verse nineteen, as the the theme of First Peter. And read, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In the, midst and in, the chaos, in the midst of the chaos of life, we are to entrust our souls to God, who is the faithful creator. And um, Jimmy reminded us at the onset of our psalm series um, that this entrusting really is a matter of, of faith. It's a hard thing to do. It's, we live in difficult times and um, life brings about difficult circumstances, hardships, persecutions, strife, depression, relational issues, war, sickness, loss, death. And God has made us emotional beings, and therefore, naturally, we're going to have emotions in the midst of these circumstances. We, we can't help it. But if we're honest with ourselves, we admit that our emotions um, and our feelings oftentimes don't line up with the Word of God. We don't feel as we should. Sometimes our emotions aren't healthy, and we oftentimes allow our unhealthy feelings to guide us, and they guide us into acting sinfully. Our seven weeks in this psalm series is meant to help us filter our emotions, filter our feelings back through the Word of God. And we've, because we've, begin, we've been given instruction by His Word about how we should feel, how we should think, and therefore how we should act. And if you're a child of God here this morning, His Spirit is... It dwells in you and is working within you, renewing your mind, conforming you to the image of Christ through his word, and therefore teaching you how you should feel and think and act in all circumstances. I think we can all admit that we live in a world today full of, of headlines. Um, if you were to think back maybe 75 years ago, where we didn't have the um, as much news and social media as we have now, I mean, there was a time 75 years ago where a war could have begun and ended and we may not have heard about it until the end of the war. Um, it's not like that today. We live in a world today where we are constantly bombarded by headlines. Um, I, and listening to Albert Moeller, he kind of puts it this way. He says, in, in a very real sense, in these days, we're living, we're living everywhere all at once because we have so much bombarded on us. And in this, there's seemingly no refuge from it. Seems to be no refuge from the headlines, no refuge um, from the problems of this world. And as we look at the headlines, most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, with ourselves the, the emotions and feelings that hit us are fear and anxiety. And we think to ourselves, how are we supposed to handle all of this chaos and strife and uncertainty around us? And in that, we know that we need to find something, or really we need to find someone who is a real refuge in this chaos. And today in Psalm 46, which is our text today, and if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can, um, the psalmist is taking us to one of the most chaotic circumstances that we could even imagine in life. I mean, he literally paints a picture here for us of uh, the, the world ending, what it seems like. You have the mountains crumbling into the sea, you have the seas roaring and raging, and he is teaching us how to think and act rightly in the, in the midst of this. Um, looking a little bit at the context of, of Psalm 46, Pastor Jimmy reminded us at the onset of this that the Psalms are divided into five different books. And today's Psalm 46 is the, uh, is the fifth Psalm in that second section of the Psalms in the second book. And you'll notice there, most, most people on the top of your heading there, chapter 46 or Psalm 46, it says, God is our fortress. C.H. Virgin called it, called this Psalm a song of holy confidence. 
Um, not just confidence, but holy confidence. And then you'll see there it's, it is um, addressed to the choir master, who, the chief musician, and um, it was written for the sons of Korah. They were the Levites who were in charge of um, guarding and, and gatekeepers of the, the threshold of the temple, the tabernacle. And it seems that they were also in some way involved in, in leading God's people in the praises of Yahweh. Get that from Second Chronicles 20. And then it says there, according to Alamoth, only time that's found in the Psalms, most likely it is a musical term um, referring to a song that is meant to be sung um, in a musical style that required high-pitched voices or uh, sopranos. Um, and then Psalm 46, it is essentially a song that, it is a song, but it's essentially divided into three stanzas. And they all basically say the same thing, but in slightly different words. Each one of these stanzas begins with um, pointing us to a truth about God that should comfort us. And then it sort of ramps up into chaos and, and distress. And then we are given a reason to pause. We're given a, a sila, so to speak, a stillness. We're given a time to take the focus off of the things around us, the chaos in life, and to focus on the truth of who God is. This psalm is not tied back to a, to a certain particular event. Uh, if it was, Booney reminded me, it would say so in the heading. Um, however, some of the phrases that we read in this, they do resemble some writings in Isaiah. And if you remember, Isaiah was the prophet in the times of Hezekiah and in his reign. And so many scholars believe that this psalm was written uh, with the account of um, Sennacherib in mind. He was the king of the Neo-Assyrians at that time and invaded Judah and attacked Judah. And um, he had already conquered all of Israel and um, in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and in 2 Chronicles 31 and 32, that's recorded. And, and I would encourage you, go read that this week. Um, young men in here, if you want an exciting story to read, something that, that grips you with details, um, you don't have to go to a book that's written by the world. Go to God's Word. Uh, go write to 2, Chronicle, or 2 Chronicles 31 and 32 and 2 Kings 18 and 19 and read this attack of God's goodness and, and how he protects his people. But here, here's the short of that story. So um, Hezekiah, like I said, he's reigning in, in Judah, which, whose capital is Jerusalem. And if you'll remember, Hezekiah was uh, right. He was a man who did right in the eyes of the Lord. And his trust in the Lord was so great that Scripture says there was not a king better than him, not before and not after. Um, and he, he really trusted in the Lord. He followed him. He held fast to him. And therefore, the Lord was with him everywhere that he went, and he prospered him. And the Neo-Assyrians, they were, they were the most sinister force, power in the East at that time. They would literally devour any nation that attempted to stand in their way, including Israel. And they, they treated their captors harshly. They would cut off limbs and ears and noses and rip out tongues. And um, the enemy, enemy soldiers that weren't killed would routinely be blinded and have their tongues torn out and flayed or burned alive, or impaled on a stake. I mean, these were nasty people. And very few nations would openly defy the Assyrians, but Judah had. Um, Hezekiah had refused to pay tribute, and he had refused to pay taxes to them. And so in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, comes to, um, to Judah and captures 46 of their fortified cities. Okay, um, These cities were... Seemingly impenetrable, yet the Assyrians would build these siege ramps and they would destroy the city's defenses with archers and siege machines and infantry. And um, once they were in, oftentimes they would burn the city entirely to the ground. And I'll skip some of the, the specifics in the story here, but Sennacherib goes on and, and he sends some of his highest officials to Judah, or to Jerusalem, excuse me, and He's planning to lay siege there, and, and Hezekiah tries to bargain with him. He pays him with gold, he pays him with silver, but uh, Sennacherib doesn't accept it and, and tries to continue to pressure um, Jerusalem into surrendering. And there's this face-off at the city wall between Judah's highest officials and between Assyria's highest officials, and the Assyrians were nasty, and they were hurling some insults from, the, from outside the wall to those who were there. They would call out to the people, and they would 
called them to question. They would tell them, question Hezekiah. Why do you trust in him? And you shouldn't trust in him. You shouldn't even trust in the Lord who he's pointing you to. Um, they would say, we've already sacked all of your cities. We've already destroyed all of your strongholds. We've already overtaken your kings. And they said, we're so confident that we have come without our gods because we don't need them to beat you. We don't need them to conquer you. And they said this, you are doomed and you will soon eat your own dung and drink your own urine. Nasty people. But the Lord in his goodness, he had already sent word to Hezekiah um, through the prophet Isaiah that the Assyrian army would not step foot in Jerusalem. And Hezekiah had commanded the people there to not even answer the taunts of Sennacherib's officials. Don't even answer them. And this is what, he's, this is what the Lord um, encouraged his people through um, Isaiah there in Second uh, Chronicles. This is what Hezekiah tells the people. He says, be strong and courageous. And this is some common language we're going to hear in a moment. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed. The Lord is with us. And because of that, um, we are more than the Assyrians. And keep in mind, the Assyrians had 185,000 soldiers with them. He said, with him, speaking of Sennacherib, with him is, is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So they did just that. They were at the wall, hurled insults at them, and, and they, they didn't utter a single word. They were still. Why? Because they had the Lord with them to fight their battles, and they had confidence in him. And so Hezekiah, he sends word to the prophet Isaiah and says, pray for us, please. Pray for the remnant. And Isaiah sends a message back to Hezekiah from the Lord, and he says, don't be afraid. Um, Assyria has reviled me. Okay, they've hurled all these insults against the wall at you, but they really reviled me, and I will take care of Sennacherib, don't you worry. And that's exactly what happens. Um, Sennacherib hears that the nation of Cush is going to come try and defeat them, and so he leaves the area. But before he leaves, he sends a letter to Hezekiah, and basically in this letter he tells Hezekiah, don't forget, I've already beaten all your other kings, I've already conquered all your fortified cities, I'm going to come do it. To you, you should just turn your back on the Lord so that you avoid the same fate that the rest of these people did. And Hezekiah, uh, he takes this letter, and the only thing he can do, he lays it before the Lord and says, Lord, um, you are the Lord God, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. And he says to the Lord, see this letter. Hear the words of Sennacherib, how he mocks the living God. And he says, O oh Lord, please save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O oh Lord God, are God alone. And Isaiah is praying at this same time too, and he sends a message from the Lord to Hezekiah again, and he's, he says this, The Lord has said that I will take care of Sennacherib. Sennacherib, the Lord is speaking here, he says, Sennacherib thinks he sees face to face with me. He thinks he sees eye to eye to me. Um, but in reality, I control him as if I have my hooks in his nose and my bit in his mouth. And then in 2 Kings 19, we read this. He, speaking of Sennacherib, shall not come into this city or even shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a single siege mound against it. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. And that night, an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, again, some familiar language are here in a minute. When the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies, then Sennacherib, king of Assyria departed and he went home and lived at Nineveh and when he was worshiping in the house of his God his sons struck him down by the sword and again this we know that this isn't the singular context for Psalm 46 here but it is highly likely at least one of the works of the Lord that the psalmist had in mind when when penning these words and it's actually good that it's not I think in a way good that it's not the singular 
focus of this psalm because it shows the timelessness of God. Um, these words weren't wit- written for one crisis only, but they were written for many, both now and, and then and in the future. And this psalm is ready-made for our crisis today because we, we might find ourselves very much like Judah did in a horrific situation where it seems like the world's going to end. The proverbial earth is giving way. The mountains are moving into the sea. The sea is roaring and raging and foaming, and the mountains are trembling. The nations around us are in an uproar and warring against us, and it feels like at any moment we're going to be destroyed. And what do we do? Do we act and react like the people of Judah? Remember, they weren't afraid. They weren't dismayed. Instead, they were strong and courageous. Why? Because they had, they had the Lord God with them. They had his presence. They were confident, not in themselves, but in Yahweh. They had the ever-present help of the God of the universe. And he would be the one that would fight their battle. And these are precisely the truths that the psalmist is pointing us to this morning in the 46th Psalm. So let's read, if you want to turn there in your Bible, and read that together. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her. When morning dawns, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of the God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we look at your word from the 46th Psalm, would you encourage us in us? Encourage us in it. Father, would you cause it to be, as Spurgeon said, a song of holy confidence. Father, would you show us your goodness and your strength, your love and your care for your people, and your sovereignty over all things. We pray these things by the power of your spirit and in Christ's name. Amen. So the psalmist begins here in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A refuge. What's a refuge? Well, a refuge is a, a shelter. It's something that provides um, safety, provides protection from the things around us. Sometimes we would even translate uh, a refuge as a hope or a trust. Not only is God our refuge, but he's also our strength and our, our power. And this has double meaning. Okay? He's our strength, meaning all the strength that we can muster up in ourselves, we place into him. We, we we, we give to him, and um, the strength that we have comes from him. This is what makes God different as a refuge. Um, he's our help. Think about a refuge for a minute. Don't you have to flee to a refuge? Right? We don't carry a refuge around in our pocket, and when we need it, we can toss it out, and it's there for us. We have to go, we have to go find a refuge somewhere, and when we do find refuge, uh, who is to say that that refuge is sufficient? Who's to say that that refuge is structurally sound from the things going on around us? Who does, who's to say that it will actually protect us? Well, God is not that kind of refuge. He's, he's not a help that is sometimes around or unproven. He is instead a help that is immediate, proven, sufficient in our times of trouble and distress distress and afflictions. Um, and, and trouble here literally means a confined space, or as we might say it in today's language, uh, a tight spot. So he is our strength that is ever-present in our tight spots. 
Um, we know ultimately that our help is the Holy Spirit. We read that in John 14 and John 15. I would encourage you to go read it this week. That um, When Christ left this earth, he said, I will send you another helper, and that is the Spirit of God. And he is indeed our helper if we are his. And You know, this, this first sentence, it's, it's abrupt to start with. It's very countercultural. God is our refuge and strength, a very, help, very present help in time of trouble. And I think it's abrupt and it's countercultural because many people will look anywhere but God for their help, for their refuge, for their hope. They'll look to armies, they'll look to governments, they'll look to family and friends, they'll look to money and wisdom and status. Um, but this abrupt countercultural truth is that is teaching us here that there is no created thing that can be your refuge or your hope. There's no created thing in this world that can be your strength. God alone can be. He was for his people in Jerusalem. He is for his people now, the church. And he will be for his people forevermore into eternity. And if you continue reading, we get this um, ever-important word, therefore. Um, because God is a proven refuge and strength, and he's a very present help in times of need, his people do what? Well, they are resolved to not fear. Even if the most horrific, seeming natural disasters are around them, even if it seems like the world is ending, it says, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Here's a little fact for those of you who like a little bit of history. Um, on this day, August 13th in 1915, 42, and if you'll remember, 1942, we were in the midst of World War II. Um, on this day, August 13th, um, the Manhattan Project was commenced. How many of you have ever heard of the Manhattan Project? Okay, I knew Gideon would have heard of it. Yeah, the Manhattan Project was commenced, and this was uh, the U.S. General Leslie Groves, and he is uh, setting aim at delivering an atomic bomb, creating it, and delivering it and constructing it. And this construction was overseen by Robert Oppenheimer. And there's a movie out right now about him. Uh, there was a TV show years ago done about the Manhattan Project. But um, almost six years later, so on this day in 1942, fast forward to almost this day in 1948, um, those two bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then in six days later, again on this day in 1948, uh, Japan surrenders to the Allies. And to this day, those are the only two nuclear bombs ever used in warfare. They were called Little Boy and Fat Man. The only two ever used. But I want to ask you this. Where will your refuge and strength be when the next nuclear bombs are used? when the earth at that time seems to be literally crumbling and falling into the sea, um, who will be your refuge? Where will you look for strength? Where will you look for help? Will it be in a, a refuge that settles you, that is ever-present, that is sufficient and proven? Or will you be fearful because the refuges that you have in your life are not proven? Are not ever present. And these things are real. And the psalmist here in, in Psalm 46, he may be speaking metaphor, metaphorically about um, all that's happening. He may be speaking metaphorically to the Israelites here, but we also can't ignore what Scripture says is going to happen when Christ returns. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 21. Again, you'll hear future language to what's going to happen when Christ returns. Luke 21, verse 10. Then he said to them, Nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be 
terrors and great signs from heaven. Skip down to verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Doesn't that sound like don't fear? Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Turn over to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Again, we're looking to the future of these events actually happening. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? We just read about who can stand. The redeemed. For those whose redemption is near, they're told to do what? Straighten up and raise your heads. Stand. Don't fear. Now, I do want to make an important distinction here. While we are not to fear uh, the, 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 the raging nature and, and the raging nations, which we'll get to in a moment, we're not to fear those things. We're not to fear the troubles of life or the end times. We should fear the one who's sovereign over those things. It is right and good and wise for us to fear the Lord. But in all of our circumstances, in our tight spots of life, so to speak, when things seem bleak and hopeless and may not seem like it's going to end, as believers we're told to not fear. And when Christ returns to judge and to rule and to reign, when this world and this age ends, we will not fear because our God is with us and our redemption is near. Selah. In the second section of this psalm, um, again, the psalmist is, is, begins by pointing us to a truth about God that should be comforting to us. Look there in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. There's some contrasts here that are helpful for us to understand and, and see. In verses 2 and 3, we we got a picture of the waters, and they were the seas, right? And what were the seas doing? They were roaring and raging and foaming and causing the mountains to tremble. And here we have a, a different vision of, of waters. Now we're introduced to a river with streams. We know that seas rage, but rivers and streams are pictures of peace and calm and tranquility. They're also an abundant source that flows perpetually. And specifically here, these streams in particular, they make glad the city of God. In other words, they bless it. These are the streams of um, spiritual blessings that flow from God. They flow from Christ by the Holy Spirit um, to continually make glad and bring about peace to the city of God. And the city referenced here is Jerusalem or Mount Zion, which is the city and the mountain that housed the, the temple of the Most High. Um, if, if you're back in Psalm 46, some of you may not even have to turn a page, but look over two psalms over in Psalm 48, um, verses 1 through 3, 3 there. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a what? As a fortress. 
And because God is in the midst of this city, because his presence dwells there, it's an immovable city. Mount Zion is immovable. Now, contrast that picture back to the mountains that we just saw in verses 2 and 3. The mountains there were doing what? Trembling, shaking, crumbling into the sea. And now we have a mountain whom God's presence is on, and that mountain is immovable. Because God has chosen to dwell there and meet with his people there. And this, this Zion and Jerusalem and its streams here, they're an earthly type, yes, but it's an earthly type that points to a heavenly type. It points ultimately to the church. Um, it's an earthly city that points to a, a heavenly city, the city of God. And we see that in, and you can write these down if you want, we won't look at them, but Ezekiel chapter 47. You see that in Zechariah chapter 14. In both of those, we're given prophetic, prophetic visions of a new Jerusalem and the streams that flow from it. Um, that um, if you read through that, turn the Dead Sea into life. Um, there's a, streams of abundance and blessing that, that come from God that make his city glad. We see it also in Revelation 22, this river of the water of life in the heavenly Jerusalem that flows from the throne of God. And we are, today, as believers, we're living between those two cities. Um, We are citizens of both right now, but we're living in this period of redemption. We're we're sort of, we're between the periods of, you know, there's creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and we're living in between these periods of fall and, and restoration and this period of redemption. And we know and understand the effects of sin. We know it. And yet, by God's grace, we are still able, through his spirit and through his word and through his son, to experience the streams of gladness that flow from him. Um, Yet, we're also looking forward to a day, because we know that this earth will be passing away. I mean, we know that ultimately our citizenship is there in Zion, the city of God, where we will one day experience his streams of gladness eternally, forever and ever with him. We also know that God no longer dwells in an earthly temple or an earthly city. He instead dwells in a heavenly city. We've talked about that. He also dwells in his people. And we as his people make up the church and he has taken up residence in us. We know from scripture that our bodies are the temples of the most high. He's put his spirit within us and therefore um, these Perpetual streams of gladness are given, they make his city, his people, his church glad. And that gladness and peace come through his presence by his spirit. Um, They come through his blessings to us in Christ. And they come to us by the goodness of his word. And these things should make us glad and full of joy and full of peace. Why should we have joy and peace? Because he's provided stability for us through his presence. And therefore, his church is immovable. And it goes on to say that God will help her, speaking of the church, he will help her when morning dawns. And this is the second time that the psalmist has directed us to the help of the Lord. And not just the help of the Lord, but it being right on time. Earlier it was mentioned that it was an ever-present, or very present, sufficient timing, immediate. And now again we hear that um, the help of God comes when the morning dawns. Um, think back to what we heard in, with Hezekiah when the people arose early in the morning at dawn. God had won their battle. His timing with them, his help was perfect. And then in verse 6, Again, now here the story begins to ramp back up that the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, and the earth melts. So early in the, earlier in the passage, the psalmist is pointing to nature, the chaos of the mountains and the, um, the seas roaring and the mountains crumbling, and now we're being directed to people, the, the trouble and things that people bring us. And we could all think of plenty that happened there, but specifically... 
the psalmist is pointing us to the kingdoms and to the nations, which simply mean it's the surrounding hostile heathens in that area that are surrounding them, that are seeking to bring about destruction to God's people. Um, they were in an uproar. They were full of commotion. They were in movement towards trying to conquer. It's the same words that were used about the mountains in the, the seas earlier. They were in an uproar. They were raging. Now we have the nations raging in an uproar. Um, Psalm 2, turn there, please. Um, preached a sermon on that a few years ago. Um, but it came, came back up to mind when I'm, I'm reading through this. The, the futility of the nations raging. We know they do it. But look there in the uh, well, beginning of verse 1 of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 4, he who sits in the heaven laughs. I mean, it's, it's laughable that the nations try and get together and, and rage against his people. He will hold them in derision. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath. Hold on to that word, speak. And he will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then in verse 12, it ends like this. Blessed are all who what? Take refuge in him. So the nation's, king, the nation's in the kingdom of rage, but um, then again, our, our, our gauge is directed away from all the things that are going on around us, away from the chaos of life. Our gaze is now directed towards the one in whom we find refuge and strength. Um, and why should we look to him? Because he utters his voice and the earth melts. Um, in reading through and studying this, I was reading through some stuff that W.S. Plummer had written on it, some commentary, and I love the way he sort of not rewrote, but the way he translated this verse for us. Okay, he utters his voice, the earth melts. W.S. Plummer says, When Jehovah speaks, all nature stands aghast at the sound of his voice. The point is this, that the enemies of the church, the enemies of God's people, they're going to seek to maim, they're going to seek to hurt and harm and discredit the people of God, and they'll, they'll do it with all of the rage and with all of the roar and all of the hatred that they can muster. Yet in contrast, all God has to do is speak. All he has to do is utter his voice, and they melt away, they vanish. He is the guardian and defender of his church from this time now and forevermore. In the next verse we read there, um, he is the Lord of hosts. Literally, that means he is Yahweh of armies. It's pointing to the fact that his power is unlimited. And as the Lord of hosts, he doesn't come to battle. He comes to win battles. He's all-powerful. But not only is he all-powerful, look there in verse 7. And we get a sense that he's also a loving father. We read that he is the God of Jacob. What it's pointing to is, is the covenant that he made with his people, adopting them, making them his own. It's pointing to his covenantal love for his people as their Father, and because of these truths, um, we can all agree that He is our fortress. And this word here, fortress, it's a little bit different than the word refuge used in verse one. Uh, a refuge, again, is it's a place to hide in. It's a place we can find hope and comfort and, and trust and protection. Um, in a fortress, it does give us all those things. But in addition, it's a fortress is a, it's a place that's built up high. It's a place to be. Uh, it's a place of offense as well. It's not just for protection, but it's a place for offense, um, a place to fight from, so to speak. And realistically, in, in this setting, it's not a place. It is a person in whom we can entrust our souls and in whom we can rest assured that he will love us as our Father and will protect us because he's all-powerful and he will wipe away our enemies with the simple utterance of his voice. Revelation 19 puts it this way. Again, this is in Christ's return, and, and we read, In the armies, or the hosts, okay, in the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him, meaning Christ, on, a white, on white horses. 
And from his mouth, in other words, from the utterance of his voice, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then in verse 7, again, as we read that, Psalm 46, verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Rest in that. Well, now we come to the final section of Psalm 46, and immediately the psalmist calls us to come and behold the works of the Lord. And this is because it's, it is in the remembering of his works that our confidence in him is grounded and grown. His works bring about the deliverance and salvation of his people. Notice what, uh, what works the Lord is pointing us to, that the psalmist is pointing us to here in verse 8. These are the works of the Lord, that he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes the wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. In other words, it is his works in, in protecting and delivering and saving his people for their good, but he also works for the glory of his name. Look there in verse 10. It says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I want to encourage you this week, go back and read the 111th Psalm as well. If you want to recount the works of the Lord and why it's so important to remember them, go back and read the 111th Psalm. Um, and, and hopefully you'll connect the dots there with the works of the Lord because you'll read in that that through his works, his people are given the inheritance of the nations. And through his works, he sends redemption to his people. And through his works, his name is revered as holy and awesome. Then we get to verse 10. And this is, uh, this is a well-known verse. Uh, many would attribute this verse to what we might call coffee mug Christianity. Um, it's a really familiar verse to us, and, and oftentimes what we do with these familiar verses is we completely lose the context around them. Verse 10, you know it, says, Be still and know that I am God. Maybe you have this verse on the wall of your house. Maybe it's on a t-shirt. Maybe you literally have it on your coffee mug. Okay. Um, maybe you've got a post or 12 or 18 on your Instagram or Facebook feed that is this picture of this nice serene day of you sitting with your Bible by the, the seashore, at the sunrise, or maybe you like the mountains, so you're on the mountains with the sunset, and you post this picture, and what's it hashtagged with? Go ahead, say it, you know. Be still and know that I'm God. And look, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, Okay. But what we do need to understand is that we have to understand the context of this verse. When he says, be still, which literally means cease your striving. When he says, cease striving and know that I am God, remember the backdrop that this is set against. The backdrop is what? The mountains are crumbling into the sea. The seas are raging and roaring. It feels like the earth is ending and the peoples that are still in it are at our doorstep ready to attack and destroy us that's the context that we get these words be still cease your striving and know that I am God should we relax at times and contemplate on God's word and in tranquility and calmness yes Spend time with him. Pray to him. Read his word. There's no substitute for it. But here, in this context, this is a call of surrender. Surrender every claim that you have to be God. Why? Well, look at the end of verse 10. Because God says what? I am, I am him. I am God. I shatter the spear, I break the bow, I burn the chariot, I bring about the desolations to the enemy. I'm the one who makes the wars cease. We need to stop trying to be God in doing those things. He is the one who does them. 
He is the one who will be exalted and glorified in all the earth. And look, we live in a world that's crazy. It is chaotic and it is getting nuttier by the minute. But as Christians, the way that we live this Christian life, the way that we show we really truly have a real refuge and a strength and an ever-present help in times of need is by recognizing that God is God and we are not and surrendering every claim that we have to thinking that we are the rulers of our own world. And this is a message to unbelievers here today as well. Uh, you're not in charge. You're not the ruler of your own life. And, and, get, and look, I get it. That's exactly what the world tells you. The world tells you that you're, you're the center of your own universe. You're the ruler of your world. You are... Every Disney movie tells you that. Every self-help book that you read tells you that. Every worldly psycho babble psychologist will tell you that you're the, you're the center of your own world. Be your own refuge and strength. Go slay your demons. Go, go make yourself glad. Win your own battles. Help yourself. Okay, and don't even get me started on that statement. How many of you have ever heard that statement? God helps those who what? Okay, well... Be offended by what I'm about to say if you want, but that is, the, that is the most ludicrous thing to ever be attributed back to Scripture. Because God's Word bears out the exact opposite. He helps the poor. He helps the, the weak. He helps the needy in their distress. He helps the sick. He helps the downtrodden. He helps the sinner. It's not that he's called us to laziness. I mean, he's, he's called us to work. He's called us to relationships, commitments, to ministry. We can go on down the list, but where we get it wrong is that we attempt to do all of these things that we've been called to in our own strength. Try to do it in our own power, and we never seek his help. We never seek his strength. We never seek his refuge or his wisdom. We never look to his word. And, and when we look at his word, the greatest call that is put on everyone who has ever walked this earth and will ever walk this earth, the greatest call is to turn to him and be saved. Yeah, we're called to work, we're called to ministry, we're called to relationships, we're called to turn to him and be saved. And unbeliever in here today, listen to me. Um, God can do for you what you can't do for yourself. He's the only one that can save you. Because the truth is that God helps those who realize they can't help themselves. The ones he helps are the ones who turn to him for help and strength and refuge. And by the work of Christ and by the indwelling of the Spirit, he is the one who can give you the one true, the only refuge and fortress, and that is himself. He alone is our refuge he alone is our very present help in tight spots. He alone is our strength, our fortress. He alone is all-powerful. He alone is immovable. He alone is God, and we are not. Therefore, hush. Cease striving. Be still. Stop trying to be God. He is on the throne, and he's with us. You are his. And this is reinforced here in verse 11 as we close. I want to invite you, read it aloud with me this morning in verse 11. The Lord of God, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Um, Booney and Alina and Catherine are going to come up now. And as they do, what the Christian church and, and what Christianity and what us as believers, what we should reflect in these times, we should reflect certainty in a time of uncertainty. As the church, we should represent and reflect grounding in a world that is groundless. We should represent security in a time of insecurity, truth in a world full of lies, reality in a world full of fakeness. We should reflect love in a world full of hate and peace in a world full of turmoil. And throughout the history of the church, this particular psalm has played a crucial role in the church's history. It's, 
Um, in times of persecution and trial and plague, the church has turned time and time again to Psalm 46. And it's because the church desperately knows that she needs a fortress. She needs a refuge. And in this psalm, we get the absolute affirmation that it is God who is the church's refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of need in her fortress. Um, some of you may know this, but Psalm 46 has often been referred to as Martin Luther's psalm. Luther's psalm. It was his favorite psalm. It's been said that uh, during dark and dangerous times, in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of despair, in the midst of distress and depression, that Luther would, would call for this psalm to be sung. And he would, he would say to his friends and to his church, uh, let us stand in concert and sing the 46th psalm and let the devil and the world do what they may. And this is what he had to say about Psalm 46. We sing this psalm to the, to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church in his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. And Luther went on later to record, to pen um, the words of the song we're about to sing, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is undoubtedly based on Psalm 46. And so we're going to stand together as a church, and we're going to sing with confidence, not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the Most High, in Yahweh, in God, because He truly is with us. And as his church, we are immovable, and our strength is in him, because Christ is on our side, um, and he must and will win this battle. I want to invite you now to stand as we sing. <clears throat>